to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where we cosplay as normal people because our costumes are actually the writers of the last season of Game of Thrones, and we put no effort into it. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderfully. Um, I am happy with your intro, probably more than I would have been, because me and you had a few disagreements about season eight, and I'm happy that you're finally to the uh, sane side of the writers almost ruined it. You know, I think I, I'm, I'm fine with disconnecting something being artistically good and something being enjoyable. And yes. I enjoyed it. And I think I can step away and realize that maybe it artistically wasn't so great. Agreed. Well, we are not a um, Game of Thrones podcast. We are a board game podcast. So let's talk some games. Before we get into it tonight, we've got a very big announcement to make. Registration is now live for MogulCon 2019 to be held the weekend of September 27th through 29th, 2019. We're going to be having it at the Rosemount Community Center, just about 15 minutes southeast of the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. We've got a nice big room with lots of gaming space and wide open and should be a great time to come game with us for the weekend. To get to the registration page, just go to GamingMoguls.com and click up on top on the MogulCon 2019 page, and that'll give you all the instructions on how to get registered. Love to see you. Hope you can join us for MogulCon 2019. So in our last episode, we said that we're going to try to get back up to a regular pace. That was not the case. <laughs> How's that working out? Not, not well. <laughs> we had a couple of cons that we attended in the last about week and a half. But from now on, we are back to the regular schedule and going to start making some great content for the listeners. So why don't we start that off with what we played this week, Mark? I know you were out and regrettably away from our game night Wednesday, which is always sad. I know. I, I felt a little bad missing that, but I maybe not that bad because I was at Gen Con. <laughs> yeah, you were doing plenty of gaming stuff. So we got a great <laughs> week of gaming in. At our Wednesday night games, we actually got a game that I wish you would have played with us, which is The Great Zimbabwe by Joran Druman and Joris Wersinga and Splatter Games. We've talked about this one in the podcast before, but kind of a quick background is you are a bunch of different tribes in Africa who are trying to be the most dominant in that region. And you do this by kind of a delivery of goods mechanism and a couple of really fun Euro mechanisms on top of that. So one that I think I've said before in the podcast that I love so much from this game is the concept of VR, which stands for victory requirements. So this game's like all the other Euro games where you have to get to a certain point to win the game. But unlike other games where that target's fixed, like let's say Viticulture or something like that, first person to 30 or 25 points wins, you take certain powers that'll increase your victory requirement depending on the strength of the power, which is really cool. The other thing that's really cool about it is there's this interesting bid mechanism where there's kind of a distribution of wealth depending on turn order. It was the first time teaching it to a couple of new players, and it was a full five-player game. And I coached a little bit for the rules, but we had an absolutely wonderful time. The one downside, though, I talked about in the last podcast, when I brought up this game, you kind of have to coach the game when you first play it because it's a little fragile. People have to keep each other in check. And if you don't do that, someone can run away. And then also... The final bit of news I have on this is I am going to buy some cubes for the different goods, and then I can explain the actual moving around of the goods without any complication from that point on. So I bought, I think, a small bag of three different colored goods just to finally sell them and won't have any issues with moving the goods around. So hopefully I won't break your brain the next time we teach it. Cool. Just a couple of random thoughts on that. First off, I agree with you completely. That victory requirement thing is really probably the crown jewel of that game. 
that is to me the most interesting part and a mechanism that I'd absolutely like to see other games use. Like imagine adding that into Uwe Rosenberg, like Agricola, for example. What if Agricola had something in there where you could take this power, but you have an inverse uh, victory point thing on it? I don't know. That probably is ultimately what happens by the fact you have to spend resources to get that. So it probably ends up there anyway. Right. But it's how that interacts with the bidding is what makes it so cool. So I wasn't going to explain this, but whoever has the highest victory requirement, which is an issue, you have the furthest road to travel. You also are the first person to make a bid for turn order. So it's kind of this way to play for turn order. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I just wish that... um I don't know. I don't uh, I don't always love Splatter Spellen's kind of heat map way of determining delivery or influence or something like that, where you kind of have to calculate this overlapping heat map of influence to determine what can be shipped where. And I don't always process that well, kind of in the same way that you don't always process the Tetris thing in Feast for Odin. Yeah, it's 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 a thing you have to see. We'll we'll get you on an online game. There's a great online implementation of it that automatically shows you where you can build stuff. You do have to kind of move stuff around and really look at the heat map, but all the things are highlighted to which you would be in XYZ range. And you still have to count it, but having that bit of guardrail so you can see everything is, is, is kind of nice. So, Yeah, no, I definitely can see that. So anywho, that was The Great Zimbabwe by Joran Druman and Joris Rasinga over at Splatter Games. Um, and we haven't given this a mogul scale, which is our little way of ranking the, the weight of a game, which the first number corresponds to the rule step and the letter, which is through A through D, represents the kind of uh, strategic issues to it. And the number is from one to five. It's A through E, actually. A through E? Pardon me, A through E. Yeah. Don't know why I said D. We rarely give E's. That's, yeah, that's really strategically gnarly. So we rarely give them out. But yeah, it is A through E. <laughs> it, that, that is the end. Yeah. So it's 3D on that scale, I'd say. I think that's fair. Cool. Burning through and going to the other games that we played that week, we also played a quick game of Gentis by Stefan Reisthaus and published by Spielworks slash Tasty Minstel Grames slash Game Brewer. Talked about this one a whole bunch, so I'm not even going to really give the background on it, but still really loving this game. I've taught it twice now in a period of time to which I need to play it under an hour and 15, and both times were relatively successful. One time we finished it with plenty of time. The second time we didn't, but we still were in the third phase and had one more round to go before we had to clean up. Curse you, Fantasy Flight. But it's a really great game. I'm still really digging this one. It's funny because it's kind of a thermometer to read how much Euro games people have played because all Gentis is is kind of a combination of neat little actions. It's not that difficult once you realize it. There's one step to each action. You're just taking an action on the turn. It's functionally worker placement with like inversing that where you drawing actions from different spots. And when you teach it to somebody who's played a lot of different Euro games, they pick it up like that. But some people that aren't as well-versed in Euro games have a little bit of a harder time in it. And it does have a lot of mechanisms. It's just kind of whether or not you're used to seeing that. So I tried to teach it to my cousin and he just had a little bit of an issue with it kind of getting past the cool mechanisms and seeing the game for what it is. So the interesting part about this game to me is hearing people try to pronounce it. Like every time somebody brings it up, they always go, I played a the second I hear him stumble on that G, I know exactly what game they're talking about. It's the G stutter game. So anywho, that was Gentis or Gentis or Kentis or Mentis. Hentis. Hentis. Yeah, Hentis. Anywho, I saw you played some games. What's this Watergate game you played, Mark? 
Sure. I've got a couple of games that I'm going to talk about that I played at Gen Con, and they weren't games that I acquired. They were they were games that I pl- picked up and played in the new hotness room. That's the BGG new hotness room that they always have every year at Gen Con that you can go check anything off the table, learn it on the fly, pick it up and play it. And I played a couple of real doozies while we were there and wanted to talk for a moment about them. Go for it. The first one, it was just J-Mac and I, when we had a relatively short amount of time, we probably only had an hour and a half that we could play. And then we had to jump over for a late night D&D session and just didn't have time to do anything big. So I kind of scanned down the line and I ended up picking up Watergate by Matthias Kramer, published by Capstone Games off the table. This was one of the hottest games at Gen Con. It had a lot of buzz. It had a lot of popularity. There was a really big push behind it. And I'm a big fan of kind of everything Capstone Games is doing these days. So I was automatically very excited about playing this one. It's a two-player game where one player represents the Nixon administration. The other player plays the press around in Washington. And you basically play it out Twilight Struggle style until either the press manages to link witnesses to Nixon in this sort of uh, hex grid thing, triangular grid that's on there that you try to put like evidence in there and link them up that is just like the area control thing that goes on in card-driven games like uh, Twilight Struggle or, or The Expanse. And Nixon wins if he manages to sort of defray things for enough turns that he manages to survive till re-election. If you like 13 Days, I think it's a safe bet that you're absolutely going to love Watergate. Uh, we had a very fun time playing this. Production's excellent. Gameplay is really good. It was a nice little tug of war that you get with every card-based game of that style. But I decided pretty quickly it maybe probably wasn't one for me, just based on the fact that I don't have a lot of opportunities to play two-player games, and I don't see my son getting horribly interested in a two-player game about the Watergate scandal. Now let me tell you about the 60s. (laughs) I was born in the 60s, so, you know, I suppose I could be the old get-off-my-lawn guy, but... Right. Well, it's interesting, because I'm pretty sure if you follow board game media in any way, like Twitter, Instagram... I've seen a lot of pictures of this game. It's I, I looked it up while you're talking about it because I knew very little about it. But it's that kind of hex grid of triangles that looks like a whole bunch of those red lines that people use in like um, like films about mobs where they're trying to put the people together to make this hierarchy with that red shoestring on the corkboard. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It looks really neat. I mean, I'm not super jazzed about 13 days so i don't think this one's in my wheelhouse either but if somebody hasn't wanted to play i think it'd be an interesting thing to try i would give it nothing but a positive review i i enjoyed playing it and you know if somebody has it i'll enjoy playing it but i don't think i'll buy it got it all right that was watergate so the other game that i got a chance to play in the hotness room while i was there was noctiluca designed by shem phillips shem phillips you know of uh raiders of the north sea architects of the west kingdom fame of the People of the Kingdom. It, Shem Phillips of the of the trilogy. <laughs> that should be a thing on BGG if it isn't. <laughs> He's the of the author. So this would be a Noctiluca of the uh, Underwater series or something like that. Anyway, Noctiluca is a pure abstract. It's interesting that he had it published by Z-Man rather than doing it under his own label, like he did all his other games. But, you know, it's a pretty high-end production with a lot of pretty colored dice. I mean, they look like a, somebody dumped a Sagrada box into there. It's very exactly the same kind of dice. But the idea is it's an underwater theme where you're trying to fill jars with these magical underwater corals or something like that that provide healing potions. And the way that you do that is that you set out all the dice on this hex grid and then you pick one of the stripes through that hex grid. You know, you you find a line all the way through there and you name like a number of pips like I'm going to take all the fours and you grab all the dice in that fours, regardless of what color there is in that line. 
And then you start filling up your bottles. If you can't put any of the dice in there, like let's say I grabbed a blue dice and I don't have any blue spots left, I then have to pass them to my left and that next person has a chance to fill their bottles with it. And so on and so forth. You take turns around the table trying to fill your bottles. And at the end of the game, it's a bit of a point salad with who has the most bottles and who has the most medallions of a certain color and plays out in about 45 minutes with, uh, I think, one to four players. So this was a lot of fun. It's uh, certainly in that Azul Sagrada Reef type mentality where it's like a 45 minute abstract that's pretty easy to explain and you can play with your family. I think if you go into that with that mindset, you'll like it quite a bit. In fact, uh, we ended up running it back and playing it twice in a row. Downside maybe is that I think you could get a little AP going on with it because you're trying to figure out how to maximize in a stripe and take the most dice possible that fit into the different colored jars that you have. And boy, there's some thinking around doing that. So I, I, I do think it could be a little bit AP in the early rounds. Got it. So it's interesting. Did you end up picking up a copy of this? So it actually sold out everywhere on there. And I, I didn't try too hard because this is a game that didn't come out at Gen Con. This has been out now for, I don't know, six weeks, a month, something like that. And I, I happen to know it's available at Fantasy Flight Games right now. So <laughs> I didn't think there was any rush to drag one home from Gen Con. That if I wanted one, I could just pick one up locally. In fact, Uncle Kirk did want to buy one really bad. And it uh, just completely sold out there. So he came home dry, but he Amazoned it and had one waiting for him when he got home. Awesome. So the other question, the reason why I asked that is, I think me and you have our midweight-ish euros or that kind of style of game allotment allocated. Like, I love Azul. And if there's a game where it's like, oh, it's Azul, but maybe with a little bit more, I'd probably just say, hey, why don't we play Azul twice instead of learning something new? Yeah. And it'll be interesting to try this one and see if it beats out the, you know what, maybe I just want to play Azul you know, kind of mentality. You know, I might pick this one for variety versus Azul. I do think Azul is a deeper, better game. Got it. Would I pick this over Sagrada? I think it has more in common with Sagrada than it does with Azul. And maybe I'm just getting that because it uses the same dice. Got it. I'm excited to try it. If Kirk's going for it, I'm definitely going to get it played sometime soon. You know, honestly, I would say the same thing about Reef. Like I, I've kind of written off Reef personally just because it, Reef's a fine game, but I'd rather play Azul. Right. Anyway, that is Noctiluca by Shem Phillips, published by Z-Man Games. We're going to call that one a, uh, it's probably a, uh, hmm, hmm, it's a good question. Rules aren't that tough. We're going to give that a 2B, maybe? 2B. 2B or not to be. All right. 2B or not to be. Noctiluca. Yep. I'm excited to try it. We also got to play some trains this past week when you were regrettably gone at Gen Con. The first one of the two train games that we played was Chicago Express, which is designed by Harry Wu, now known as John Bohr, now that he's uh, outed himself as <laughs> that is one of his pen names, published by Queen Games and Winsome Games, previously my edition by Queen Games. We've talked about this game a lot. It's one of our favorite kind of cube rail financially 18xx-like games that doesn't go full whole hog on the 18xx thing. The game's fast. Well, and and hard-hitting in under an hour. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. It plays fast. I think we played 45 minutes with six players, and it played pretty well at six players. The reason why I'm going to bring it up is listen to our previous episodes if you want to hear what we think about it. We very much like this game. I got a ru another rules issue wrong, and it's interesting because <laughs> the way that the rules are written are definitely interpreted the way that I interpreted it as. 
And I was almost going to bring it out for the podcast, but that seems too pedantic. So I think what happened is when they were translating the, the rules from English from Winsome Games and John Bohr and brought them to Queen Games, which is a German company from my understanding, they must have forgot a word because functionally what you're doing in Chicago Express is you are doing three different actions and they have little trackers for each one of these. You can only do a certain number of actions before a dividend phase is called. So every person can do one of the three actions that are available. And then once two of them are in the red, then you have to do a dividend phase. So very, at least in my interpretation, clearly in the rules says when two things are done in the phase or two, two of the gauges are down in red, you have to call a dividend phase, which is, from my interpretation, clearly mentioned before they actually take their action. So the thing says is like, check, there it is. And and so it kind of started this rules debate. And I was like, I could understand both ways because I used to play at the do the action, the whole thing, then you do a dividends phase after someone's turn. And then I switched because I reread the rules really detailed wise and switched to the do the dividend phase, then do the action. And turns out I did it wrong. I overthought it and it's just really simple and it makes more sense the other way anyways. I just think they forgot the word next. Sure. So there's one section that reads, do the dividend phase before the player's turn. And I think it's before the next player's turn or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because I don't want to be that pedantic. But I Googled it and asked some people online who happily and thankfully corrected me and that there is a bit of a rules issue there. So keep an eye out for Chicago Express. The rules are not written the best. Sounds great. I uh, That's another one I need to play again soon. Yeah. And we actually haven't given it a mogul scale either, which is weird because we've talked about this game a lot. That is funny. That must have just been a just straight up omission. Yeah. So I'm giving it a 2C on the mogul scale. Pretty rules light, but it's got a decent amount of strategy. Not too long. It's a good little game. I agree. The other thing we got to do is at the cabin this weekend, if you followed us on Instagram, you got to see that I played a game of 1846 with my cousins. We played outside and it was gorgeous enjoying the nice weather. I played this game three times in the last week, once online and twice in person. And I am absolutely loving the repeat play kind of mentality with this. I still have not won this week. I lost all three of the games. And <laughs> I, it was really bad because I was the really only one that knew the game pretty well between Tyler and Eric and I. And I couldn't even use the, that rules competency to grind them into the dirt. But there's a couple of new things that I've realized at kind of higher level or probably mid-level play, to be honest with us. The token game can become so mean in this game and i guess we didn't really see it oh it's hideous on that yeah yeah we played yeah you, you saw it gets it gets out of hand mark it's just it's ridiculous oh, for Ty sure tyler got completely tokened out of a game that we played it, it he couldn't even function <laughs> and then towards the end game of an online game we're playing right now that just wrapped up i couldn't get into places because they just kept on toking me out and they wouldn't let me run it even when it didn't really increase their things and they had minor invested in me they still wanted to token me out it was just brutal the other thing I noticed on this most recent couple of plays is how mean it is for people to cross invest in you. So I was out to an early lead with the Grand Trunk Railroad and everybody invested in me at $150 a share and no one invested in the second best company that was making marginally less money than me. And so he had a whole bunch of gas left in the tank and I had fully spent my wad. <laughs> I ended up losing because I just had nothing. I had to withhold a couple of times to get enough uh, for a train. And I never would have thought cross investment would be an evil tool, which was fun. The final thing I'd say is there's also some fun shenanigans you can do with track tiles. So in a lot of games, you can upgrade around certain cities or if you token somebody out, oh, well, whatever, they'll be able to do it. But because in 1846, it always has a cost to upgrade. 
if your company is completely out of money, you can't upgrade. So maybe you can't always get that two upgrades if you're running two different companies. And if a company is a opponent's company is ahead of you, they can completely upgrade in a very mean way to make sure that you don't get where you need to get. And that was the other reason that Eric kept me from winning the game. Damn you, Eric Nell. <laughs> but I'm loving this one at kind of lower player counts. Um, I, it has that variable setup that makes it really replayable and just really awesome. i loving this game in a way that I didn't think I could. So Yeah, I hadn't really done the math on the fact that since there is an upgrade cost with everything, that uh, if you do run yourself out of money, you also can't upgrade yourself out of that hole. And Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a just evil twist. so tight yeah so in the other game i was running two different companies and i was like okay cool they're both running nearly identical routes so i'll be able to double upgrade but due to some douchey tokening by goddamn eric nell i couldn't get in through the region <laughs> and ended up losing and he won so even though i had three shares advantage on him ugh, i'm still just kicking myself in the foot I got a darn Eric Nell story from our online game, too, as well, whereas I had the best company and I was sailing away to what looked like an easy victory. And God darn Eric Nell bought more shares than me and upgraded them and ended up taking the share value win from me. Absolutely brutal. But 1846 is a wonderful game by Thomas Lehman and GMT Games. I still don't know if it's a great teaching game. I think it's a game you can learn easily. The reason why I don't think it's a good teaching game is a lot of weird little quirks to it that if you're dealing with the right group and you can explain to them, hey, just ignore this. This is weird. Just don't internalize that the first round you go in the opposite way or this weird draft or all this stuff. It's not like other games. If you come in and give them the caveats or token cost calling everything and all these little things, then they might like it. But I've taught some people on this and they really like the in-cap kind of lifestyle with 1846 and they didn't like a lot of the full cap games. And it's it's interesting. I still love the game, but I'm still kind of hesitant to bring it out as a teaching game. I think I realized what my reticence about it being a teaching game was. And it's the same feeling I actually have about Gaia Project is in that there is a mm, tribal knowledge that people that have played it a lot have that make it unfriendly for newer players to get in. Like there are combos in that game that are very important. And if you know those combos and nobody stops you with that, you're just going to run away with the win. Or if you just don't know what's there or if you, you know, and there are some companies that are just objectively garbage. and. I mean, that exists in a lot of 18xx, right? 1846 does not have an exclusivity on that one. But I think if you're going to use it as a teaching game, it's important that everybody in the game is at the same level because it is just it's patently unfair for people that have played it a bunch of times to be in the same game as people that have never played that title. Because there's a lot of things you just don't know. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of different pitfalls like. Maybe when you're playing the first time, you'd be like, "Okay, well, you know what matters is getting a token in Chicago. And maybe that does matter. But, you know, it also matters controlling those cities around the Great Lakes there. I think it's Toledo and Cincinnati. If you don't token there early, those are really big choke points for those eastern companies unless they're going to go south. So it's interesting knowing all those pitfalls and making sure they know. But it's really opening up for repeat plays for us. And I think I didn't quite realize how awesome this game could be for more experienced players. Huge fan. Sure. 1846 by Thomas Lehman and GMT Games. Hey, if you're a fan of trains, sit tight. I promise you we'll talk more about them later in this episode. Yes, but let's do a quick little detour to your wonderful trip to Gen Con. Just as a quick little background on Gen Con, it's short for Geneva Games Convention because it used to be held in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. It was founded by Gary Gygax back in the day. And I think it was actually originally where D&D was founded or like kind of made up. They did some special rules to a war game. So everyone was running little heroes and then that became D&D. Correct. Actually, it was the Lake Geneva Wargaming Convention. Oh, it was wargaming. They had the whole thing. Um, And Mm -hmm. 
I believe this is your third or second Gen Con, Mark. Second. So this has been a big part of my life growing up. I think I've been to eight or nine of them. Me and my uncle and a bunch of family members would always go. And we had so much fun time. But regrettably, with the wedding this summer and trying to put a little bit of a kibosh on summer travel, I was not able to go this year. So I'd love to hear all about your trip, Mark. Sure. This is only my second Gen Con. Last year, I sort of just eh, ran around and yanked levers. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know what I would enjoy. So I tried a lot of different things last year. And this year, I was able to go into it, hopefully a little smarter and target things that I was more interested in a whole lot better and to uh, experience things that I don't get to do the rest of the time when I'm not at Gen Con and really make Gen Con a singular experience for that. And I think I did really well at that. And what I'm talking about is that actually, this is going to sound crazy. I do not go to Gen Con to board game, which is really funny from somebody that has a board gaming podcast, but I actually go there and play Dungeons and Dragons most of the time because I don't really get to do that at home very often. So it's sort of my vacation to take a vacation from board gaming and go play D&D for a weekend. Well, and it's an absolutely wonderful place to do that. The ticketed event system for D&D, I've had some of my best DMs and sessions that I've ever had there. Oh, yeah. In general. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, I, you know, some of the there were so many really creative, interesting things that the game masters brought in with, you know, amazing energy and, you know, costumes and role playing and visual aids that they created that really made the experience special. Like, this is a funny story. We played in a epic adventure league thing on Friday night, and we ended up fighting a Kraken at the end that if you got hit by the Kraken, he would fling you up to 200 feet away and doing a whole bunch of damage. This was actually a higher level adventure. But when you got flung, you actually had to pick up all your stuff and go to a different table <laughs> and just walk up. Right, because each table in that room was functionally a small boat correct. fighting the Kraken in some way, right? Right, correct. So all of a sudden, just this guy would just walk up and go... uh, Hey, I'm uh, Quarthog. I'm a uh, eighth level wizard, and I just ow! I just got thrown over here. <laughs> I'm now on your boat. I am dripping wet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves here with Gen Con. Why don't we give like a two second description of what it is now? Sure. We gave the history of sure. it. Sure. Go ahead. Gen Con is the largest board gaming, largest gaming event in North America. They, I believe they have 60,000 people that come through there every day. And it, it I saw it was 70 this year, no, 70,000 people. That's probably right. I mean, it was, it, it's amazing how big it is. It literally takes over the city of Indianapolis completely. Like it takes over all the hotel rooms. It takes over all the taxis and Ubers. It takes over all the restaurants and sort of just, it becomes this weird little nerd Mecca for four days and in, in Late July, early August. Yeah, the utopia of gaming. Mm -hmm. And that's really a fun, amazing environment to be in. But the hard part about that is that because it takes it over, very simple things become difficult to do. For example, our hotel last year, we were able to get one downtown because I got a very early sign up time and we just were a few blocks away from the convention center in a short walk and boom, there we were. This year, we were 12 miles away, (laughs) way out in the middle of nowhere. And we had to, it was probably a half hour drive to get in every time. So we had to call an Uber every time. And if we didn't schedule one early in the morning and or go back late at night, we either didn't get a pickup or we had to pay ridiculous surge pricing to get where we wanted to go. So we ended up spending, I don't know, 15 to 18 hours a day down at Gen Con. And I think as a result, we averaged somewhere between three and a half and four hours of sleep every night during that week. God, no wonder you sound all hoarse. Oh, well, so what would happen is we'd, we'd wrap up our event at like midnight and 
we'd pull up the Uber pricing or Lyft pricing to get to our hotel and it would be like $81. But at one o'clock, it would be down to $21. So we just went out and had appetizers and beers because we pretty much got them for free at that point rather than giving them to the Uber driver. And so we'd get back to our hotel about 1.30 or 2 in the morning. And then in order to be back for our event at 9, we sort of had to be on the road at 7. So there were some pretty short nights there. Brutal. That just is a, a brutal a brutal tour, to say the least. It was, but, uh, you know, you're doing fun stuff, so. Right. The one thing that, uh, owing to that 70,000 person thing, the amazing thing about this is seeing the line at Will Call every year. This is where you actually pick up your tickets if you order them and aren't smart enough to have them shipped directly to you. So what happens is you have to go wait in line to get your badge and get your tickets. And I heard many anecdotal stories that that line was two hours and 45 minutes long on like Thursday morning and on Sunday morning. And it literally wrapped all the way around the convention center, out the door, all the way over to Lucas Oil Stadium at one point. Jeez, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So I felt kind of bad for the people like Sunday is family day and there's discounted prices for families to come and enjoy Gen Con. And I felt a little bad that it like, okay, you trek down there for the day with your kid and it closes early on Sunday too. It closes at four. So, you know, you get there at 10, you wait in line till 1245. And then you have three and a half <laughs> yeah. hours, to just... three hours and 15 minutes to enjoy it. And boom, there you go. Brutal. So aside from those slight hangups, what other things were kind of your thesis and goals from this year compared to last year? Because last year sure. you were first and I have some weird biases towards Gen Con, which I don't need to get on my high horse here. But I was trying to uh, seeing if I could play more games there, play D&D. So we hung out in the like hot games room a lot. I intended to do that. But here's the thing. When you're signing up for your events, you don't know what you're going to get. Right. You, you know, you sort of throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see what stuck. And what ended up sticking was a six hour game every morning at 9 a.m. and a six hour game every night starting at 8 p.m. So that did not leave a lot of time in the middle of the day to do other things. So I really had like this two hour window every afternoon that I could go walk the hall or whatever else. So I just, I didn't make it to the hot game room anywhere near as much as I would have liked to. I didn't actually get to walk the whole show floor until Sunday. I finally got a chance to walk everything. Got it. So what kind of uh, games and stuff were kind of your targets to buy? Like what was your things to consume? And if you don't know, Gen sure. Con's probably one of the best conventions for purchasing. I mean, it's a giant convention full of every single board game or geek related retailer in there. Yeah. Let's call it a games market. Perfect. I don't really get that excited about what the hot titles are. I mean, every year there's 20 or so uh, air quotes chase games. When the hall opens 10 a.m. Thursday morning, there is 5000 people packed up against the doors and some guy gets up there and gets the whole crowd chanting, do not run, do not run. <laughs> and then at 10 o'clock, they open the door and everybody sprints through the door to get one of the 50 copies that a publisher brought with them of these 20 chase games. They run, but we're also gamers, so maybe not the fastest run. Well, <laughs> good point. Yeah, they, uh, they, they amble quickly there. And I don't care. Here's the thing. Any game that is available there in that method is going to be available from Amazon or your local friendly local game store in a month anyway for 25% less than it's available for on the show floor. So I don't know. I don't I don't need to air quotes have it first. It's too much consumer. And also, you're probably paying a premium for getting it there. You know, it's just no, no question. And and then you have to find a way to get it back to wherever it is that you flew in from. Not so bad for us. We have our good friend Brent. 
agreed to haul some of my games back home and Kirk brought an extra suitcase and I brought a large suitcase and between all those things I was able to get my acquisitions home in one piece but um yeah I mean if you go nuts and buy a whole bunch of games and I hope you brought an SUV and tote that stuff home. Right. Or you're paying out the wazoo to ship it from USPS or something. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, what I'm there to do is I have a little bit different focus on that one. First off, I was there to play a bunch of D&D because I don't get to do it otherwise. I'm there to shop for really kind of more obscure things. So I was ex- I was trying to explain this to J-Mac during the week that I said, you know, the things that I'm looking for are rare. But they're not rare because they didn't bring many copies of them. In fact, they probably only have two copies of them, but they're rare because they're kind of obscure. And nobody's looking for these games except for me. But these may be the only two copies of them I could find anywhere. So I'm, I'm really excited about these weird little finds that are rare and not popular. And I don't know where else I would find them. Hipsterism. You're describing hipsterism. I might be, but... Um, a lot of these are actually imported games from Japan. I, we've made no secret about oh that. Oh my God, the hip, the, the hip, the hipsterism is going off the charts here. To be fair, I've been to Japan. <laughs> oh my gosh, there you go. It's even more hipstery. Oh my gosh, you've been to Japan before. It was cool. Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, Continue writing your, your fixie, bud. Yes. So, <laughs> so I actually, I, I had pre-ordered a bunch of small box games from Japan that were carried by Meeplesource. That was one thing I was excited about picking up. Then another thing I like to do there is I like to really look through all the uh, upgraded game bits, the bling that you can add to your games, whether it's better dice or better components or storage solutions or carrying solutions or whatever else. It's these things that are, I don't know, something about seeing them in person and looking through them and really seeing what the quality looks like. I love doing that. This isn't something I do for every game, but of my top 25 evergreen games, I really like to make them a better tactile experience when I play them. So I spend a lot of time looking around and trying to find those things. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. Right. We'll talk about the whole. Well, I also have an interesting thought on that. You don't, or at least in our friendly local game stores, they don't have that stuff. No, they really they don't. don't have the like kind of inserts or that add ons. It's games, some dice, maybe some sleeves, maybe some like bit boxes or something that are just for like cleanup and stuff. But that's not really what they do well. They don't have the BGG store there, right? And so it's fun to see all the kind of stuff that you see online. And it's fun to shop in person, you know? No question. It's fun. No question. Well, and I would also say, you know, we game at Fantasy Flight Games and Fantasy Flight Games may be known for thing games with miniatures in them. So this, the floor space that might be devoted to bling components probably taken up by like, you know, miniatures, paints and stuff like that. Right, 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 right. And the final thing I like to do at Gen Con is I used to be a very avid magic player and collector, and I'm way out of that hobby right now, so much so that I've just decided to liquidate my collection. And that's easier said than done. And Gen Con actually makes it pretty easy. So I schlepped a bunch of cards to Gen Con with the goal of selling them off and spent a significant amount of time liquidating cards. And funded a pretty good chunk of my trip as a result. Absolutely. So why don't you give kind of some top things that you've seen, some of your highlights? Right on. As I said, one of my missions was to go around and find cool Japanese little games, and some of them I pre-ordered. Jake, you were the direct beneficiary of this one. We placed a pre-order from Oink Games to get the brand new Nine Tiles Panic delivered to us, along with a couple others like Trick of the Phantom. And when I went to the Oink booth, I didn't know this. Apparently other people did. But the owner and lead designer at Oink Games, Mr. Jun Sasaki, was actually in the booth signing autographs. I, I instantly shifted into fanboy mode. Just I, I, I fanboyed out so super hard. I had him sign all of the games that I bought from him. I whipped my copy of Nine Tiles out 
of my backpack and had him sign that one and literally had him posing for pictures. And that's awesome. That's great. I showed him a copy of my shelf of oinks and I just got a, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I think it was pretty, that's awesome. pretty easy to prove that, I, you know, I, I knew who the heck he was and was super fanboying out as a result. So very cool meeting Sasaki-san from Oink and making him sign probably too many things. Right. He was probably like, how many things did he buy from us? Jesus <laughs> Christ. Uh, so that was thing one. Thing two, as a podcaster, I got to give a quick shout out. I got a chance to meet Robin Christina from Blue Peg, Pink Peg. We were walking out on Thursday afternoon and J-Mac actually recognized him. And man, they could not have been nicer people. They literally stopped what they were doing. They were just walking out at the time. So I don't think we were interrupting them, but literally the most genuine, nicest conversation. You know, I, I got to thank them for just being awesome. Awesome. That's so great. Yeah. So the next thing that I noticed is that it seemed like there was more niche indie small publishers, you know, that are doing really unique things. By that, I'm referring to Oink had a much larger booth this year. Itten, the publisher of Tokyo Highway, had their own booth with a whole bunch of really interesting import games. Parallel Games had a pretty large booth. That's City of Big Shoulders. Jordan Draper wasn't there, but he shared a booth with somebody else that also had a bunch of really neat, you know, so you could actually see his more obscure titles like metal and stuff like that there. Oh, cool. And yeah. And also some that were really small booths last year that really growed up this year was uh, uh, like later games had a fairly large booth this year. Apparently they got some of that root money going there. Huge. That's hilarious. Yeah. So they've obviously had a very good year over the last year <laughs> on the back of root. Red Raven Games. It was also nice to see their booth. And man, they're coming out with a lot of stuff now all of a sudden. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's interesting seeing the kind of market of board games, right? Because you expect there to be like a huge Z-Man booth. You expect there to be a huge Asmodee pavilion kind of thing, right? And it's fun seeing the kind of weird things that are getting into games, but obviously have money for other reasons. You know, like Top Deck, I think they're a card manufacturer for like baseball cards. They always have a huge, great booth because they, they have all that base card, baseball card money, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun seeing all the things cut out because the, I believe the Leader Games booth was pretty small and kind of tucked away last year. Yeah. And so hearing that it's huge, I mean, that's, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, they were right Good in the middle them. of the hall this year for the most part. Cool. So what were some of your highlights that were not in like the game scene, like more of the other kind of things like games you played and stuff like that? Right on. Easily one of the high points of the entire trip was I got a chance to meet up with some fellow clotchers. It's a online game discussion community that I'm a member of that uh, we decided to have a meetup on Saturday night and uh, went out for dinner at Burger Study, which, man, that was one of the best burgers I've had in a long time. We had to wait an hour and 45 minutes to get in, but what an exceptional burger. Got a chance to meet up with Ashley, Ryan, Neil, Nick, Sean, and Chi Singh. Just had a ton of laughs, a lot of chatting about games. And uh, after going out for dinner and having a few drinks, we all went out to the JW Marriott and set up in the third floor ballroom, which if you're looking for open gaming space at Gen Con, uh, that's where it's at. They open up their hugest ballroom with tons of tables and you can just go game your brains out. And I don't think it shuts down at night. Yeah, because it's 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 like tucked away. I don't know if like Gen Con really knows they have this giant room. Yeah. Tucked away over there. Well, and we we left at three in the morning and it was still going strong ish. So I'm pretty sure oh, they didn't great. shut down at all. Yeah, it's like it's almost like they don't book it for something. But pretty much the last three years, it's just a great place to like kind of set up shop. Yeah. If you're bored and want to take some time off and sit down for a bit. 
Well, and I don't know if it was, uh, you know, fully endorsed this, but man, it was party, party, party up there that night too. So it was a pretty rowdy crowd. Awesome. So what games did you end up playing? One of my acquisitions from Oink Games was Nine Tiles Panic. As you know, listening from our Oink episode back in like episode five, one of our absolute favorite games from Oink Games is Nine Tiles. You have nine tiles with patterns on them. And you're trying to match another pattern. The challenge is they don't all have the same thing on the back. So if you flip one, you might find it's the wrong thing and you have to end up doing a big rearrange. Nine Tiles Panic takes that a step further where you're actually building a little city. You've kind of got a pipeline style, like curves and inlets and outlets and crossing points and so forth. The idea is that you're going to build a city where all the roads have to start off the board and end off the board. And you have to do that, oh, let's call it Galaxy Trucker style. So everybody starts building. And then when the first person's done, they'll turn over a sand timer. And then everybody else has to be done by the time the sand timer is done. So it's good and stressful. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get three objectives completed. That might be like most dogs in your city or longest road or most aliens captured or something like that. Once the timers run out, everybody that has actually completed their city gets judged on those factors and gets scored on those. And depending on how many players you have, once you reach a certain point value, the end game is triggered. And then whoever has the most points is ultimately the winner. Super, super, super fun game. God, I cannot wait to play this. Ugh. I bet you'll have a chance tomorrow night. <laughs> I bet you I will. So because I think we've both had some complaints about nine tiles and it's that we both love it. I mean, it's one of our favorite oinks. I think it's probably my favorite oinks and I think probably yours, too, or at least top two. Oh, yeah. Um, the issue is sometimes it gets to a point where it just feels a little sporty. You know, it feels a little bit like a sport where it's just like, oh, you're just better at this than me, you know? Yeah. And yeah. having a little bit of like game tables, you know, like thinkiness to it instead of just like, oh, God, Jake has just figured this out. Right. Um, will be really fun because, I mean, I, I taught a new player and it did the same thing. I won in four four goes and then I felt like a dick, you know, like, <laughs> um, having a little bit of like point scoring, maybe someone to make like smart plays and really think about something better than I can is going to be a really fun iteration on this. Yeah. No, that was a it was a big hit by everybody involved. In fact, um, taught it at the bar late night uh, one night and uh, Troy and Kirk and J-Mac all went and bought their own copies the next day. Awesome. There'll be a few. We're doing the good word, spreading the good word of the oinks. What else did you play? Ashley taught me one of the craziest games I've seen in a long time. It's a three player only game called Eggs of Ostrich. I've never heard of this game before. That's that's normal. I'm assuming it's a Japanese <laughs> game, it depending is. on the uh, the weird word order there. Yes. So there's a whole bunch of like uh, these I'd call them white lozenges, which are ostrich eggs. And you've got a bunch of baskets. They uh, they have like their basket sizes are three, five, seven and nine. And what happens is you have a handful of cards, say three, five, seven and nine, because you're going to each turn bid on the card that gets flipped up on how many eggs you're going to try to fit, which basket you're going to fit your eggs into. So like you'll flip a card over that'll say 10 eggs or something like that. I'm going to say that I'm going to try to fit them in the five basket and everybody that's in it then gets a share of that rounded down. So if it's 10 eggs, everybody gets three of them and they have to be able to fit in the basket that you bid. If you put in too many, you lose those eggs and your basket breaks and is out of the game. You have one less basket. At the end of the game, if you have a full basket, you get all the points for it. If you have a not full basket, you get uh, half the points rounded down. There's also a thing where there's a skip card in there and amber, which is worth four points. And if you're the only person to bid on the amber, meaning that other people didn't have their skip cards available, you actually have to cool off your card after you play it for once. So if amber comes up when you're the only one with a skip card, you automatically get it. 
And it's really about kind of hosing people so that when the right card comes up thinking, well, it's a nine and there's three of us and they're probably going to try to fit their three eggs into their three basket, but I'm going to skip and now they're going to break their three basket and lose those eggs. Super cool. Plays in about 10 minutes, lots of laughs, and uh, I really need to try to find a copy of that. So love that game. Eggs of Ostrich by Shimpei Sato and Japan Brand. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to try some weirder stuff. Hope you can find a copy. Yeah. Super weird. Now, the last game was taught to us by uh, my friend Nick Nelson, who is actually a game demoer at the Renegade booth. So we actually had professionals teaching us this, Jake. Not not like us. Wow. Wow. That's that's official. He that's amazing. I know. Like we were probably the 400th person that day he had taught that to. Oh, my gosh. And he actually seemed to still be enjoying himself. So hats off. Anyway, this was our game of the con and with the game we played more than anything else. It is a trick taking game that invokes time travel. Still with me? OK, right. I In know. like a fun way. Oh, you haven't played Anachrony. I was going to compare it to that and see how similar the mechanism was. But well, OK, it's funny you mentioned that because Anachrony came up as we were discussing it and everybody kind of said, it's really time travel in Anachrony, whereas this one really feels like time travel. Wow. OK. So All right. What happens is standard trick taking game. There's a Trump suit. There's everybody plays a card and has to follow suit. And, you know, if you have the highest of that suit, you win or you play a Trump if you can't and you win it then. What gets crazy is then every round you get some crystals. And before you actually play out your hand that turn, you bid a number of crystals. And those crystals determine how many turns you can go back to try to change the result of previous hands. Okay. Say, for example, I lost the last hand. I can then go back and bid one crystal, go back to that hand and play a higher card and now take control of that. Or I can bid all the way back to the trump card with those crystals and I can change the trump card retroactively so that all those cards that won with trump cards, eh, that trump card's now meaningless. And now somebody can just play a higher card of the lead suit back on that to try to win that trick. Is there like a board or something to put the different tricks at so you can see kind of the positions? Yeah, there's counters. You lay them out in a track. Oh, okay. And you have a little like meeple guy that you show what, like what year you went back to, <laughs> like where you time traveled back okay. to. So after you bid, you're like, okay, two of us are in the present. One of us is a year ago. Three of us, you know, one other person is two years ago. And then you actually work backwards where they, you do the present hand first, then you go back to that one. And then you go back to the one before that. And then if anybody's finally all the way back to the Trump suit, then you all play out your cards at once and the highest card gets to pick what the new Trump suit would be. Oh, weird. Okay. Super, super interesting because yeah, tricks you won in the past, you don't actually get to win. Game is over when somebody actually manages to win three tricks. And it's a very fluid thing. Like you'll be up to two and then somebody will change something. You'll be back to one trick one. Then you're back to zero tricks one. But then you change the Trump suit and now you're at two tricks one. And <laughs> it's very crazy. Got it's it. super interesting. Like it broke my brain the first time I played it. Well, awesome. We're such big fans of uh, trick taking games. I'm excited to play. Yeah, I, I got to believe that when somebody, you know, it's a new designer, Jonathan Woodard. And uh, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that game pitch where, you know, OK, so I've got a time travel trick taking game. <laughs> be like, Keep you, you have what now? <laughs> you have what now? <laughs> I, I'm sure there was a uh, yeah, that he had their full attention when he started explaining that one because it's so unique. Cool. Well, I'm excited to play that one. Well, and, uh, you know, all of about 20 bucks, an ultra cheap game, too. Cool. That kind of summarizes the games that I had a chance to play and some of the great experiences that I have. All in all, a super successful Gen Con. So, Mark, 
I know we've talked about it a lot. Gen Con is a huge time to buy a bunch of cool stuff for games. It's like the largest marketplace for games and gaming accessories. What are some of the coolest things that you purchased while you were at Gen Con? Certainly did some shopping while I was there, and uh, I'll try to narrow this down to the things I'm most excited about. One of those being upgraded bits, and I got a chance to stop by Top Shelf Gamer, one of my absolute favorite stores online for blinging out your games. And I was able to pick up some bits to upgrade Orleans, which is one of my favorite games and one that I've spent a lot of time upgrading. And I've been looking at a bunch of different solutions for that one. And man, theirs is gorgeous. So super excited about that. Game wise, I think the one that I'm really the most excited about playing is Black Angel, which is really probably one of the hottest games there. In fact, they sold out the first couple of days. This is uh, the latest Pearl Games release, and it's by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, and Elaine Orban. Uh, Jake, have you heard of those guys before? I have. I'm trying to think if they're either from Twa or if they're from uh, the Grand Austria Hotel or what's the other one? Um, Lorenzo. Those all kind of sound the same. They're the Twa. Oh, crew, that's right. Twa is one of my. Yeah, this is uh, this is Twa in space. Oh. So Twa part do maybe <laughs> Twa point oh, There it is. Figured it out. Took me a little bit. The Black Angel is a generation ship that's going out into the stars and you're trying to manage the AI that keeps everybody alive and makes the trip safely. And it's beautifully illustrated by Ian O'Toole. Love the design team. Love the theme. I kind of feel like this is almost like uh, what Gaia Project did to Terra Mystica, that this is sort of that 2.0 version that takes it to space. Oh, cool. Maybe they will uh, iron out some of the things I didn't like about it because I do like what you're doing in Twa. So maybe this game will be just perfect for me. So Black Angel, I'm really excited to play that one. So that's my Gen Con experience. I had a great time. I don't know if you could tell by my voice. I'm a little rough tonight and Gen Con's loud. Everything about it's loud. Well, there's just people everywhere. I mean, there's people just shouting, playing games, doing that dumb werewolf thing that is in all the hallways at night that's loud as hell. (laughs) Ugh, it's just it's just so many people. It's just a mass of humanity. Yeah. So everywhere you go, you're just you're projecting your voice and yelling just to be heard over the top of everybody, just adding to the noise. And eh, my voice is a little tired still as a result from that. But battle on. So I think we should give the listeners a fair bit of warning before we proceed to the next section. We were lucky enough to go to a wonderful convention, very small, that's kind of specifically for 18xx and train games. So we're going to deep dive on these and kind of describe our experiences. But this is all 18xx games from this point on, besides two that we've already talked about. So with that being said, shall we describe our experience at MidsumCon, Mark? You all have been warned. Train approaches. Choo-choo. Let's go. <laughs> so we get to go to MidsumCon in Chicago last, the week before Gen Con. It was really fun back-to-back in conventions this year. Love about that for a summer break. Absolutely. And I think we have to do a huge shout out to wonderful friends of ours that were so kind to make this a wonderful experience. Firstly, Ira let us stay at his house, who's a listener in front of the show. Um, That was incredibly kind of you. That was the nicest thing that I've ever had someone do for me at a gaming convention. And his home was beautiful and I slept well and made the convention an absolutely wonderful experience. Secondly, our friend that we uh, yelled at earlier in the game, Eric Nell, we play online with very often. We also play online with Eric, with Ira all the time. He also was there and made sure I played with him pretty much the entire con and he just made sure we were having a good time. So wonderful meeting you guys in person. Absolute wonderful time playing games with you. Can't wait to play more games with you, hopefully at MogulCon. Yeah, huge shout out to Ira and Eric for just being awesome hosts our entire stay in Chicago and really making us feel welcome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That being said, let's start with some 
dang 18xx games. Why don't we start with kind of the weirdest game? I'm actually referring to this one as a meme 18xx game because we were playing <laughs> it and we were just laughing at it the entire time because it was so goofy. I'm talking about 1857 by Eddie Robbins, um, now John Bohr, now that the veil has been lifted, and published by Winsome Games. So functionally, 1857 is in Argentina, and the thing that's weird about it is it is of the school of thought of 1830 plus special rules and on a different map. What they did is they removed one train from each one of the categories. Other than that, the rules are pretty much the exact same as 1830. There's different privates. There's not tiered ones. They're all worth the same amount. They just do special abilities. And functionally, what happens is there's going to be a bankruptcy or when they get to the diesel train and there isn't a bankruptcy, you just call the game anyways because it's kind of boring for that point on. So it's all about avoiding the train rush, pushing trains as aggressively as possible, and trying to be the best position you can be when the person to your left dies. I was regrettably the person who died. And it was <laughs> interesting. There's a concept in 18xx games and a lot of games that if you're not first, you're last in the words of the Talladega Knights crew. And uh, it's just I didn't really fully internalize that until I played this game because I was talking with my cousin Tyler after and he was like, I mean, I didn't go bankrupt. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't win. He's like, but I didn't go bankrupt. And I was like, you didn't win. And it all of a sudden started making sense to me of like, you need to do everything in the game to make sure you win in this game and playing for second is stupid. And so not crapping on Tyler here, his position was very bad. He couldn't really do anything. He, he, I think he ran his company once like with actually trains, like just because oh, it was so ridiculous. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. But this game with teaching not really understanding how much each one of the privates cost took 35, 40 minutes. So it's definitely fast enough where you can just keep on playing it over and over and over again, almost as a teaching game. So playing 1857 was awesome. Don't know if I need it. And if you see it used on the market, probably don't spend $200 on it. But it was it was definitely fun to play at a convention like this. It was it was awesome. Yeah, I was surprised how quickly you guys were done with that play because I was in the middle of playing something else at the time and it's like, oh, they're done. Yeah. Well, especially because you're <laughs> that was quick. with MidsumCon, there's no windows. You're just sitting inside, you know, like time gets waxed and waned in different ways. And so that game took like 35 minutes. It was ridiculous. And we were just laughing the entire time. I'm like, this is so silly, but it was fun. It'd be a great teaching game. That's one I would have liked to have tried, but I was locked up playing something much longer at the time. You were. What were you playing at the time there, Mark? So while you guys were playing that, I was in the middle of a six-person game of 1822. And 1822 is sort of the darling of the 18xx world from a couple of years ago. It's set in England. Well, it was definitely the darling of that convention. I think it was always being played. At least that or a variant, right? Well, some variant of it. At any given moment, at least one table of 1822, 1822 Canada or 1822 Mexico was going on at all times. So that system was incredibly popular with the convention going crowd there. And when I say system, it's because those games all have a very particular style, which is different. It's a lot. I'd say it's the Euroiest system among the 18xx games where it's really about synergizing special powers, timing out how you merge your companies and uh, just doing good operational maneuvers. It's a little it's a lot less about stock shenanigans and financial plays as it is about making all your special powers and your locations work together. And they've taken that system and extended it out to two different maps, a bigger one in 1822 Canada and a smaller one in 1822 Mexico. This reinforced the fact that I think 1822 is probably my favorite 18xx game right now, and I'm pretty good at it, actually. But you wouldn't know that from my first play. I ended up playing it twice over the weekend, 
and got a rule wrong, bid on something stupid, and actually knocked myself out of the game in the first round, which is weird for an eight-hour <laughs> game. <laughs> and, and and fortunately, everybody was cool about it and was willing to just fold that first game and say, mm, "Let's try this again later." And thankfully, so because I would have been in, I would have been miserable for hours in that game. Yeah, it's very kind that they let you bail out of that. Oh, I know that was ridiculous. The second game, though, went much, much, much better. I got the best miner, the number 10. Um, I got myself a permanent two train. I got myself the GWR and, uh, you know, two, two game went great. It actually came down to the point near the end where five out of the six of us thought we had a legitimate chance of winning. And at the end, (laughs) the bank ended up breaking really, really early because we all train locked ourselves. Every company had a ton of money into it, and the bank broke when we were way before the sevens. And in fact, we were in the fives when the bank broke. Oh, that's weird. It ended really quickly. I've seen that happen in other games, but I haven't seen that happen in 22. Yeah, because 22 is a huge bank. Ended up finishing in second place, just uh, about $300 out of first. And we were all high-fiving each other and congratulating each other on uh, what an awesome playthrough that was. So super fun play of 1822. Yeah, I wasn't lucky enough to play a copy of 1822 this weekend. And that was by my own choice. I was invited to do a Canada one, but I wasn't super interested in the Canadian, especially with it being a bigger version than regular 1822. Right. Um, right. I was really interested to try the 1822 MX, the Mexico version of it. And I would love to try that because at least from what I've heard, it's a little bit shorter. Regardless, I didn't get to try that one either. And I really like Mexico as a geography for train games. Another time. 1822 Mexico is one that I'm very hyped about for the future. I think that having that system in a not eight hour game would be something that would be a sure hit for us. Also, schedule a night, dude. Let's play 1822. Just as long as you know, we can play play it in a game night. <sighs> we just got to start by five. I mean, set up. We start by five. Let's do it. So while you were playing 1822 and the reason why your, your game went a little longer than ours was I was also playing a game of 1817 which I will describe in a moment, but then it somehow actually was faster. Was it two games that you were playing at the same time that I was playing one of 1817? I think you actually played both of those games in the same amount of time we played 1822. Which was amazing because I'll describe 1817 in a minute, but it's definitely a big beast of a game. And the fact that we were able to play it with two new players at the table in a expedited process was amazing. So 1817, it is named after the year that the stock market opened in New York City. it's designed by Craig Bartell and Tim Flowers and published by All Aboard Games. And the kind of pretext of this one is obviously by its name, there's a lot of stock shenanigans in this game. However, I'm putting up my finger right now and giving a verbal asterisk. It's not as different as like 1830s style stock shenanigans. So functionally, what you can do in this game is it's an incremental cap game. And you can grow companies up from two share companies that you own 100% of into five share companies that you can own up to 60% of, and then 10 share companies to which you can own 60% of, just like regular rules. And when you convert them, you don't do anything to the stock price or anything like all those other games where you like shove two values together or something. Functionally, your director share just stays the same value and your shares stay the same value as whatever this current market value is. But it opens up a lot more runway for you to be able to dump more money into your company through the ink cap, buying it more shares. So that was really sweet. There's also no forced train buys in this game. So it has this interesting loan mechanism to which there is an interest rate. And so depending on how many loans you have, which always pay out $100, you may have to play a fluctuating price anywhere from like $10 per loan all the way up to I think like 50 
So it can get really out of hand quickly and you can get in a very bad thing. The amount of levers financially in this game that you're given is absolutely amazing. And I don't know if I want to dig that much into it now because I've only had one play of it and I'm going to start diving into some online plays of it soon. But it was amazing. I tried the coal strategy. So I went into the south and had a whole bunch of coal tokens that could make early money for me because, you know, I love that early money. And I ended up being completely trapped and lost the game because of it. The one thing I will say is it gives you a lot of levers, but I was expecting to not understand this game one bit. You know, I was expecting to be like, this is just so unlike other things. It wasn't that complicated. And I know you didn't play because you weren't kind of looking for that shenanigans, the crazy of a game. It wasn't. Um, It was much more easy to understand than I would have thought. That being said, I don't know much about the friendly sales. I don't think there was any friendly sales that happened in our gameplay. And then there was also only two forced closures, and both those kind of had a very simple, some guy flew too close to the sun, me and Tyler, and ended up exploding. So it was really cool. I ended up pre-ordering a copy through All Aboard Games, which we'll talk about in a bit after we talk about 18 Mexico, but it was a wonderful game. That was 1817. You know, I had the chance to jump in on this one, but, you know, every time everybody explained about it, the the explanation I got was, boy, I really didn't even understand what was going on. It's exhausting. You know, there's so many confusing things happening that I looked at it and I went, man, I don't know that that's the trip I want right now. So maybe I made the wrong choice on that. And I think for the right night, I'd give it a whirl. Well, I have. I, I have a copy incoming, which we'll talk about in a bit because All Aboard Games is doing a very cool pre-order for a couple of games. I think you're going to like it. It's not as complicated as I thought, and certain aspects of it are kind of taken out. So there's unlimited track tiles of every single formation. You don't have to worry about the tile composition. Like Anything you want to do functionally, you can do. And that's kind of fun. And then there are also those Lawson tracks where they all go into the middle point of the track and then split out. So all of the Mm -hmm. tiles end up being upgradable. So that was kind of fun to wire it out. And it's more about reading the game state. So I think you'll like it. It's not as shenanigans as I would have thought. It's not, it doesn't feel silly. Second thing that we played during that time was 18 Mexico, not 1822 Max, 18 Mexico by Mark Derrick. And our edition was printed by All Aboard Games. Well, it was manufactured by All Aboard Games. And it's actually originally a deep thought game. So this is of the category of 1830 full cap games, but a bit faster with some weird chrome added on. And so the chrome that they added onto this one was there's a handful of minor companies when you start the game. There's three of them. There's a national railway that can acquire one of the major railways, and it kind of Voltrons up from two of the smaller miners that get traded in. The other thing that's kind of interesting about it is it floats at 50% versus 60, and you can lay two different yellow tiles at the turn. I'm absolutely still in love with this game. We've played it a handful of times online, and this was probably the first time we played with the hard, brutal train rush. So there's two different ways to do the train rush in this game. One is a soft rust on the fours, or one is a hard rust on the fours. And I've been told that we should play a hard rust on the fours, and it hasn't really mattered in the four or five times we've played. I think we've always played the soft rush variant, but we played the hard rush variant here, and it was a four-player game, and it really didn't matter. Hmm. I don't know if we were all really good at the game or if just because we're all focused on this one train rush, we made sure to figure it out. But Eric overextended himself a little bit and then was able to pull because he was the next person in position from the national. He got his company acquired by Tyler, who was running the national. So it was good. He he was in a good position. So he didn't really have to worry about that. And he got away 
scot-free functionally. And then everybody else was able to buy their trains and it was not a big problem. I really liked that aspect of the game. The only thing that might be my little bit of an issue is I'd like some way to game the priority deal slash stock round because this might be a little too detailed, but functionally the national railway acquires one major and it goes around in the table, starting with whoever is the president of the national railway. And so there's nothing you can really do besides knowing who's going for that and hoping that they go for it. Mm -hmm. If they don't do it and let go somewhere else and you played into that and then they don't acquire it for whatever reason for whatever the board state is, and you were anticipating they would be there to acquire your company, then you're kind of straight out of luck. I thought that I was going to get my company acquired. Then Eric started one last minute and pulled all the money and assets over. And I was like, oh God, no. But I was able to hold on. I ended up winning. So ha ha, I did it. I beat Eric once. I need to get more than one play in this one. I know we um, we, we played it in person once. Uh, it was very fun. Then we've tried to play a game online with it. And that one just sort of died on the vine. And I don't know that I was going to win that game, but it would have been nice to have seen it through. It's a good one. It's fast-ish, too. I think it's fast for an 18xx game, so this would easily be Wednesdayable from people that know 18xx. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's really fun. And just the little bit of tweaks that it has on the 18-630-like full-cap system really made it a fun game. So I think we should play it sometime locally, and that's 18 max. The interesting thing you said, though, is you said that's the first time you played with the hard rust. And I'm 99% sure we played with the hard rust when we played in person because I remember some things going badly on the train rush. So I think we played the soft rush. I think we did like a halfway into the game. We decided that we played the hard rush because functionally the diesels came out before the fours had a chance to phase out and run once more. So we just said, ah, just throw them away. I think we just like said, you know, <laughs> we pushed the train so hard. Let's make it hard. So I don't know. I've played this game a handful of times. I probably, I think five or six. I should probably figure out which ways I've done it. But we played the hard rush way this way and it didn't matter. So I don't know. We're just the best experienced players, I guess. I got a chance to play one that I've played only online and finally got to play in real life. Josh Lampkin brought his print and play version of 1828 along by J.C. Lawrence. This is one we've talked about on a previous episode, and I'll admit I don't know that I fully understood it now in hindsight as well as I could have. And now that I've seen it play in person and seen what levers could be <laughs> yanked on that one, whew, there's a lot going on in that game. So the idea behind 1828 is that every little thing everywhere you turn is a trap. Like there are traps everywhere on the map. There are traps everywhere in the auction rounds There are traps in the stock market. There are traps in the pricing. Everything you can do, you can either play the trap incorrectly and get eaten by it, or you can play it correctly and gain a huge advantage. Terrifically clever on how you do that. It also has this notion of something called a system in there where you can merge two companies together into a system and form a larger company, sort of. Now, what's interesting about that is that when you do that, there's these two different shells that allow you to transfer trains ad hoc, just back and forth between the two shells. So you, what you can do is you can move all of your trains into one shell and then make yourself forced by a train with the other shell whenever you want to. And you don't have to trade money to move these things back and forth between the companies in your system. And that's a super gamey, crazy thing to do. There's also some interesting games where you can recapitalize your company I never saw this done, by the way, and I've just had this explained to me and, you know, cut me some slack if I'm explaining this incorrectly. But there's a way that you can merge a floated running company along with a company with just the president's share out and basically cause the company to become unfloated 
And then when you start it as a system, you can refloat it as a system with a much higher stock price and recapitalize it and bring all the money back in. Mind blowing. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, because we play this online and I hearing you originally describe all the differences at the convention, I was like, you can do what now? Every private seems like there's sort of a right way to play it and a wrong way to play it. Uh, as you lay track on the map, there's places where lots of places where there's a right and a wrong way to lay track in specific places. Once you've played it a bunch and you know all of these little gotchas all over the place, you can really excel at it. And it was myself and Josh Lamkin and Ira and Eric. And Josh has played this a lot. So he knew a lot of the tricks. And Eric just is a really good player. So Ira and I are kind of scratching our heads watching all this stuff go down. Eric is doing his best. And, you know, Josh all of a sudden just explodes with a system and goes flying right on by Eric as Eric's just like, wait. We didn't end up finishing the game, but uh, I learned a ton from the playthrough and am freshly energized. It was one of those that I I don't know if I was excited to play before, but now that I've seen what can be done on that one, I'm intrigued because I think it absolutely rewards multiple plays and developing a level of expertise with that system. Yeah, I hope you print and play this one because I'd love to try it in person because it was neat. Yeah, I mean, I I remember saying that this is neat. I couldn't fully grasp my head around it and I... The rules were not good. I'm somewhat backing away from playing online games when I don't play it in person first. And I just couldn't really internalize the rules and the game was moving a little slow. So I'm happy that it was such an awesome game on the other side of it. No, I definitely I played it twice online and I'm not sure that I understood what was going on and played it any different than a somewhat different 1830. Whereas, boy, the game itself is wildly different than that. And I have a little bit of hesitation in that I'm not entirely sure I'm smart enough to play it, but that's fine. (laughs) I'm still interested in trying to get there. Well, that's awesome. We'll have to go on that adventure together, Mark. Make a copy. It'll be great. So that's 1828 by J.C. Lawrence. So as I said earlier, 18 mechs and 1817 are actually going to have or are currently have a pre-order through all board games. So functionally, from my understanding and read all aboard's newsletter for this and the pre-order thing, he used some of the funds to build some capital to actually invest in a fully Chinese overseas mass market manufactured editions of both 1817 and 18 Mexico. So they're available online on his website right now at All Aboard Games, and you can pre-order them. They're a little bit cheaper than they would be if they were handmade, not as completely cheaper as you'd think. And from my understanding, they're using all of the same art and everything on the inside looks the exact same. It'll just be manufactured kind of like more traditional board games instead of Scott and his house. So check that out. I've also heard that it's the best way for international people to get these games because they'll be shipping with Chesapeake to the international distributors. And you won't have to get your copies from wherever Scott sends up shop in the United States. So that is my little plug for 1817 and 18 Mexico. I did pre-order a copy of 1817. So Mark, we will be able to play it all the time. And I'm super happy and excited for him to get that out so that he can move on and then get a full publish done for 1822 MX. That's the next one. Come on, Scott. So while we're talking about Scott, let's talk about his prototype that he just released as a kind of pre-order actually just like the weekend after we came back. So we're talking, of course, about 18 New England, designed by Scott Peterson and published by All Aboard Games. Yeah, this was a huge surprise. I know you went over, you went over to visit Scott to pick some things up right before we went over to MidsumCon. And rather unexpectedly, you said, hey, look what I got. And you whipped out a copy of 18 New England, which is 
fresh off the grill. Yeah, it is. So I think he's been working on this one. He seems to be very interested in kind of like newer player friendly games. And I think this one kind of approaches it. So it's very similar to 1861 slash 67, which is both Russia and Canada, respectively, which are games where there's a whole bunch of miners across the board. And then you can either have them grow up into 10 share companies or you can shove them together and have them be 10 share companies at a lower conversion rate functionally. But instead, in the auction for 1861, what you're doing is you're just bidding on each one in a certain order determined by the players. So first you have to bid the one in Moscow, and then whoever's the next person gets to bid whatever the one they want. And then you do full open auctions for that one. In this one, there's kind of a gamey draft way to figure it out. So functionally, it's a snake draft. So that means, let's assume you're at a four-player table. Player number one goes, then player number two goes, and then player number three goes, then player number four goes, then player number four goes again. Then we go three, two, one, all the way back, and then one goes again. So you're snaking back and forth. But what you can do on your turn is you can either dibs one of the smaller miners that exist, which there's 10 at the start of the game, or you can convert one of those miners that you've already dibsed at one of the 10 available price spots, which is 100 down through 60, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, two for each stock value. And what's weird about that is there's a fixed amount of spots. So if you wanted to float a company at 100 and everybody in front of you floated 100, sorry, dude, you should have played the game better. You're not going to float it there. You have to float elsewhere. The other thing that's interesting is whenever you dibs a miner, you have to be able to have the capital on hand to be able to float it on a later time. So that has some implications. Like let's say Mark maybe is going to try to get two miners that are really close together and he got the really good one and I'm after him. So maybe I dibs that one just to hold it away from him. So he's going to have to think about doing something else for a while and not do something else. The other thing you can do aside from converting them is pass, which is where you're just done for the, the opening stock round. Or And if you have any of your miners that haven't been converted at that point in time, when you pass, you have to return them to the center. So it might be some way to kind of game people away from taking things. I haven't fully explored the system, so don't know how many opportunities that really gives you. But functionally, what this does is it made the opening auction a little bit faster. And instead of just having everybody just kind of like go around the table with a guy with like a a gavel pointing to everybody, okay, Mark, what are you going to bid on this? Tyler, what are you going to bid on this? All the way down. You kind of just quickly gamified it by drafting. And I thought it added a lot to the game. What are your thoughts, Mark? I definitely liked how that went too. I don't know. We didn't know the game well enough to know that angle of, you know, nobody dibs one away from somebody else and then gave it back later on. I never saw that happen. You know, I'm sure once you know the game better on, you'd look at it and say, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get those two. I'm going to take that one and then give it back after you've passed. So I didn't see that happen, but it was an interesting system. And maybe I'm overstating it and and maybe I'm just reaching into something there and maybe there's not something there. But to me, it at least seems as if you can hold on to something for a while and maybe slow their role on either a getting the good float spots or maybe covering up all the cheaper spots so then they can't float too and so on and so forth. So. So one other angle about the miners that's different from the 1861-67 system is that the miners never go up in value as you run them. So you run you run those trains out. You never increase the stock value. They're just they are what they are when you pard them Mm -hmm. and you can convert them up to majors anytime after the three trains come out just by merely paying the difference between 200 bucks and two shares of whatever you parted at. Yeah. So you just pay that difference and bam, now it's a major company up there. So there's also not a way to just launch a full 10 share company just from scratch like you can in 6167. Maybe one of the downsides of that system is that new companies can just go poof into existence. Right. And suddenly now you've got new tokens in your neighborhood that are blocking your way that just appeared out of nowhere. 
you can't do that in 18 New England. Right. You literally have to start with an existing minor and then grow that thing up to a major. So there's no just mystical teleportation of train companies right into your backyard. Right. The good old fashioned, I have a bunch of capital. Let's just shove it into the game. Here we go. Yep. Yeah. And so I, I like that too. And with how fast tile lays go in 61 slash 67, you can really get connected to stuff pretty quickly. And because you're usually going to float so high, you can be really opportunistic with that, which is a thing I pretty much do in every other game. The other difference here that makes it a little bit different is there's no national railroad. No. So in both 1861 and 67, there's a national railroad and you get pretty decent payouts for your capital. Let's say you get to a miner and you have no plans to convert it or something and it dies. It just dies. You don't really get to do anything about it. You may or may not force train by if you want to with your miners. The only time that you have to do it is when the big boy trains come out. So that kind of is a little difference too, which is, I think, something that's going to be interesting to play around with, which is another one of complaints with 1861-67. It seems like everybody really postures to make sure they're not eaten and they really don't want to lose their company. And then when somebody does, it's like, that's really it. I lose one stock value per loan and I had no stock value. I had no loans, so I just lose one stock value and I'm paid out fully. So I lost 20 bucks on that whole transaction. And now the token just went away. Like it's, it's pretty easy to get rid of it right whereas in this game you're just it just gets it's just gone right like i don't have a train at the end of the round it my company's gone and i get nothing sucks to be you figure it out play better Mm -hmm. um the other thing that you can do just like in 61 and 67 is you can shove two miners together and what's interesting about that is whenever you convert to a major 10 share company you get something called a par price but what we haven't explained about this game is this is an incremental cap game So what that means is if you shove two companies together and the par price is the added sum total of those, so let's say you're parring one at 90 and one at 80, so your sum total will be 170, round down to the closest space on the thing, you now have all of your shares that were not purchased by you as IPO shares. And what that means is all of those shares, regardless of when people buy it in an incremental cap game, they're worth $170. Even if you withhold a whole bunch and they're only valued at, and your actual stock value is only at 100 each one of those shares are worth 170 and your company can issue those to also be able to raise some capital. And this converts them into regular market shares to which they can then redeem. What did you think of this, Mark? You know, it's interesting. I saw several plays of this happen. Um, I played it once with you. I then taught some of the other attendees this game right afterwards and played with them. That was perhaps ill-advised because I spent so much time babysitting the game and I was just fried by then that I did poorly putting it mildly and i was just making like i couldn't do math by the end of that game but i saw it played one other time over the course of the weekend the next day a group of people had jumped in and played it and it's interesting our first game we did a ton of stock issuing we really 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 worked that mechanism and got a bunch of money out and we got running fast whereas the other two plays there was almost none There was very little in the way of uh, issuing and using that ability to get capital back out of the company by issuing IPO. Did you let them know that they can rebuy those shares in? It's free money functionally. Oh, yeah, definitely. So functionally, what you you can do is you issue four or five shares and then your company drops down in value from $100 to $60. Your company, they can rebuy those later. So they pretty much get $100. And then times five functionally and drops by five. So they lose 40% of that. So they get 60 times five, 300 extra dollars that kind of poofed from nowhere that still, if people buy those shares from the company, or if you pay out, they still pay into the treasury. 
it's a really interesting thing. And I think it's almost like I equated it to like that fast and furious NOS thing. And so whenever you, you want to do it at the right time <laughs> to make sure you can really game it to be able to get the most out of it. But if you go too early or too late, you're not gonna be able to win. So I thought that was interesting. I'd love to play with that mechanism more. I think it was a bit like the first time I played 1828 and I really didn't understand the implications of the system. So I just ignored it. Right. And I, so I think they didn't fully understand the implications of it. So they just didn't yank those levers. So the final thing that I think is pretty neat about this game, aside from kind of like track and regular geographical issues is the big trains are all E trains, five, six, and eight, I believe, or the sevens, whatever the big trains, all the permanents are E trains. And what's weird about it is a lot of the time in these games, you'll get like a seven E, a seven train and a five train on a company. What this one does is instead of having a seven route and a five route, you only run the lowered valued route. So the five trained route, and then you multiply that score by two. So you don't actually need to have two different routes. You seem to have one valuable route and make sure that you pair the trains together correctly at the right company. I don't know if this game ha- if this has a lot of implications like kind of down the line. Again, we've only played this game once. You've played it twice. But I did think that was neat. The kind of it made the game move a little quicker because you don't have to count as many routes. And maybe that was done for geographical constraints regions because it's definitely a smaller map than 61 and 67. So I don't know. What do you think of it, Mark? It's funny. I would actually say it's a bigger map than 67 because fair like there's less total hexes. But there's a lot more usable, interesting space. Like one of my beefs with 67 in Canada is that there's this like, you know, hot corridor down in the bottom. Kind of not that much else that's interesting. Yeah. Southeast uh, in the Ontario, Southwest Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this literally the entire map was interesting and we really built the map out pretty hard. This game has a really nasty token rush to it, too. There was I mean, man, there was a lot of tokens on the board when we played. And all the way up to the bitter end, people were still running routes around some nasty tokens so that they could have a route, an interesting route. And so the entire map had hexes on it by the end, just about with people trying to get around some ill-placed token. Yeah, it's it's brutal, but at least you don't have to do that around two different runs. It's just one. So I don't yep. I think it was neat. I I think Scott's kind of take on this one was I love me some 61 and 67, but I had some issues with that kind of system. And I'm gonna try to iterate on them to improve it to kind of address some of those issues. Those being the startup slowness to it, the this one also doesn't have privates, which kind of feel useless in 61 and 67. You know, they're just kind of there as like an artifact of the 1830 roots. There's the, the the national that can just absorb companies and doesn't really have any implications to it and all that stuff. So I think that he did a good job with his iterative process. And I think he helped address the kind of playtime and other issues to it. The one downside, and I think this is present around everybody, it seemed as if the game lasted a couple of ORs too long. Something, and I, I'm not sure what happened. I mean, like we were still adding new track all the way to the bitter end, but there was a point about two to three ORs from the end where everybody had, you know, big E trains and everybody was doing like 54 runs, you know, big, huge runs. And the bank still had a lot of money left in it. <laughs> so it just took a long time to run the bank out. Right. You're like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure it has this much train? Like, how does this game end? It does it by when the eight dies. And so, yeah, it's it's something. I don't know if it's because of the whole nature of only needing one good route with two trains versus two. So there's a little bit less track lane. But we got to the point, too. I mean, we were making a lot of money 
Like there were yeah. some nutty runs. They were some of the, the highest runs I've had in any game where it's like, really? That's how much you're going to score? And you'd think that that would actually make the game end quicker, but yet strangely it didn't. Yeah, so I know he's still working on it. The pre-order was released. It'll be interesting to see how he finalizes on it. But so far, I'm a fan. I still think 61 has a great place in my collection, and I'm a little biased when it comes towards 18xx games. But this one definitely may be considered if you don't want to get 61 or 67. Maybe this one might be up your valley if you if you like it yeah. for whatever reason. And I 100% know Scott's aware of those concerns and is is working on it. So I'm convinced that by the time it's finalized that the back end will be tightened up a little bit. But I would say that doing a comparison here, I would say 18 New England is to 61-67 as 18 Chesapeake was to 1830. That it sort of takes it, refines it, simplifies it a little bit, yet is still a full strength experience for everybody that's playing. Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree. It was I had a great time with it. I definitely had some qualms with the end game and the drafting thing got a little weird. And maybe I'm reading in too much into the abilities of it, but I liked it. I mean, I don't think that you only need to own one, but they're definitely yep. They're they're similar games. There's no other way to put it. And I would, you know, of the people that I taught and observed the games on and sort of answered questions for, I sort of proctored that third game a little bit and helped them out. There was nothing but positive comments across the board from the players that played it. So, in fact, one of the people on the third play was somebody that I'd played with before. So he wanted enough to come back for a second round. So that's awesome. Uh, looks like a winner. That's uh, 18 New England from Scott Peterson and all aboard games. Very promising. All right. Or that has been all the 18xx games. We only have a couple of small games that I just want to mention here, just for whatever reason, just kind of fillers that we played. The first one is Arboretum. Got to play it. Um, which is designed by Dan Kassar and Renegade Games. We've talked about a bunch. The only reason I bring this up is I played with the good friend Josh Lampkin, and I'm not the only one who misunderstood the rules to Arboretum. Um, <laughs> we had three rules disagreements or three rules confusions. Two of them were disagreements. Birds of a feather flock together, Jake. Um, one of them was, uh, how does that work? So they were, Josh didn't know that you combined the scores of the cards, which very much changes the game secondarily he said once you draw off the top you have to finish drawing off the top which is very common in a lot of other card games with a discard pile so i understand why he did that but completely changes the game and then finally we didn't know if a pathway could be one card we ended up scoring it and said if this matters we will get up and fix it at the end but it ended up not, not mattering so it's not just me who had an issue with arboretum don't know what it is about this game the rule's not written that well it's not that hard of a game should be able to figure it out but <laughs> anywho it's still a wonderful game. I just thought I'd poke a little fun at our friend Josh. And then finally, the other train game filler that I was able to play was Sue Line by Tom Russell and Hollenspiel Games. This is spelled S-O-O, like not not like S-I-O-U-X, like the, uh, the, the, the Native American tribe. Or S-U-E. S-U-E, yep, Sue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So functionally, this is a cube rail game, which is very similar to Chicago Express, but only had three companies in it. I'm not going to give a big detail in the game because I only played it once. I was fried after 1817, but I left it with this feeling of that was good, you know, pretty mediocre on it. And I don't know what it is about this game, but I cannot get it out of my head. I just keep on thinking about it. I don't know what it is about it. So curse you, Tom Russell. I think I'm gonna have to buy your game. Yeah, I was sad I didn't get a chance to experience this one. This is while I was doing my second teaching game of 18 New England. Because it's one that I've been interested in from the sidelines on. I don't know that much about it, but it seems like something I'd like and sad I didn't get a chance to. And it's funny hearing you come around on it because I remember being very interested in what your opinion on this game was. And 
I said, so Jake, how was Sue line? And you kind of went, eh. Well, I didn't go, eh. I went, that was okay. fine. You know, it was, I, I would have given it like a seven. You know, one of those games where it's like, yay, fun. Yeah, I'll play that. Whatever. No big deal. But now as it's kind of boiling in the back burner, it's just, I don't know what it is about this game, but I can't stop thinking about it, which is pretty rare for me just to really dwell on a game that I've only played once. I'm thinking I'm going to pick up a copy. So it'll be interesting to see what we're going to like with it. So I've tried a whole bunch of Cube Rail games, like I've tried Paris Connection and a lot of the kind of winsome games that were published by Queen Games. I ended up getting rid of all of them besides Paris Connection and Chicago Express because I usually find most of these games kind of lacking. I'd rather just play those too. And this one definitely felt different enough. So it's interesting. I've seen Tom discuss some of his games and He's wildly okay if it's not for everybody. And, you know, he realizes he generates some nichier games that aren't everybody's cup of tea. So I think actually, you know, the fact that, uh, hey, it was kind of weird. I didn't know if I didn't like it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it kind of sunk in. Probably a pretty good compliment to give him, actually. Yeah, it's been in my cart on their website at least six times since this convention. I just keep on going and be like, <laughs> no, Jake, we're buying less things. And then I'd leave it, but I'll definitely <laughs> pick it up sometime. So that was our experience at Midsum Con. Did you have a good time there, Mark? Yeah, I absolutely did. It had been a long time since I'd played any 18xx's in person in real life, and uh, whew, got my fill that weekend. Oh, geez, we absolutely did. And I know we thanked some people at the beginning, but I think it, it makes sense to thank them again. So huge thank you to Ira for letting us stay at your house. It was the most wonderful con experience I've had in a long time, and Eric for being such a great host. Thank you, Josh, for letting us play with you and meeting you for the first time in person. It was awesome. And I think you also want to thank thank your buddy, man, your, your little buddy or your tall buddy. My little buddy, Anthony Carver. Anthony was the one that sets up and runs this one. He's actually about my height. Well, he called you little buddy. You're He's not your little buddy. You're the little buddy, Mark. He's the big buddy. <laughs> he, he gave me a hug at the end and said, I'm going to miss you, little buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, he was great. It was an awesome convention. Definitely. I hope you'll be seeing us again there next year. You betcha. So. With that being said, this has been the training moguls. <laughs> I am Conductor Jake. And I'm uh, the lead engineer, Mark. There it is. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, folks. Good night. Have a good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Gaming Moguls or reach us via email jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.